The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suitor tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suitor tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. everybody and welcome to another episode of wings for breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic i'm max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer, and it is monday but really all the days are the same at this point so it could be any day and you wouldn't know the difference prashant how you doing yeah i mean that that basically sums it up i mean i think i saw a great meme talking about this where we've somehow managed to condense the seven day week into a three day week where the days are yesterday, today, and tomorrow, so that sounds about right. Yeah, that is about right, and unfortunately, the problem with that is I, I can't tell how long this has been going on. I think my my math brain tells me it's been about a month, but it also has been about three years if you're looking at me in the mirror, so uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little befuddled. Yeah, you know, as I've been thinking about it, the way I kind of keep track of time is by how far away I am from the last week I worked in the hospital, and so... I just worked last week, which means, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going in every three weeks. So I know I've been out doing this for at least three and a half weeks now. So that's kind of my one way to keep track of time. I never keep track of time in the off season anyway, usually. Like this is about the time when I start to throw the calendar in the trash for the summer because, I, you know, I'm not going to be leaving my house a whole lot. Um, but, man, it's been a whole different animal now. So quite interesting. Um I don't know, but I feel like, I don't know how many days ago this was, for obvious reasons, uh, but we've got some Twitter vaguely, uh, you know, topics to address. We, we you, you had a long discussion with uh, one of our listeners in my mentions, and uh, they w- the general thrust of the, the conclusion was that uh, we're going to need you to go off about goalies. Is that something you feel prepared to do? Always, because, you know, from everyone who's listened to the show for this, this year, you, you've heard on occasion how many times I say I wouldn't draft a goalie, uh, I would allocate the smallest amount of money possible to goaltending, uh, I would stay far, far away from the Carey Price contract, 
I think one of the worst contracts in the NHL right now is the Sergei Bobrovsky contract. And so you try to bring it all back together. And I think it, you know, when it comes to talking about goaltenders and why they're such a different animal, I think it starts with first basically three major things as, that it comes to with goalies. Number one, we are very bad right now at identifying from prospect level or junior level which goalies are actually going to be good goalies. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about guys like Yaroslav Askarov. We talk about guys last year like Spencer Knight. You know, we talked about guys like Carey Price, even in his draft year, he had a really high pedigree. But there are boatloads of goaltenders uh, that have had this kind of aura about them in the junior level that never really translated to the NHL level. Uh, in the same fashion that a number one, you know, forward or a number one defenseman usually translates. I mean, we can go on and on and on about the examples between Jack Campbell never really living up to his uh, kind of hype uh, that he had when he was in juniors in the United States. You know, we talk about all the recent, you know, major Canadian uh, world juniors goalies that haven't really lived up to their hype. You go all the way back to Rick DiPietro as a first overall pick, never really reach that kind of level. But then you get guys like Frederick Anderson, who, you know, somehow he gets drafted seventh round, and now he's become one of the better goaltenders in the NHL. Braden Holtby kind of comes out of, you know, nowhere. You get a lot of guys that it's just, you're like, where did this player come from? I'm not really sure. Um, And all of a sudden you're just trying to figure out, well, how did they, how did they really get to where they're going to be right now? Henrik Lundqvist is another example. He was a seventh round pick and you're just like, why are all these great goalies coming so late in the draft? And and even as we move along historically, while we've gotten a little bit better at teasing out who the top players are for forwards and, and, and defensemen, we're still not at that point with goaltenders. And so problem number one with goaltenders, I think, is we're, we still don't have enough data um, to really evaluate a goaltender. For some of these leagues, we don't even have shots. We don't even know save percentage. I don't have shot locations. The WHL uh, doesn't really give you shot individual shot totals or Corsi or, or five and five things to really be able to dive into a goaltender's performance. You may just get goals against average, and, and that's all you're really left with. And so uh, we have imperfect or inadequate data to really evaluate and project goaltender talent to the next level. So I think that's problem number one. And then I think problem number two is... You know, once you've got the goaltender, you've got, you know, the Yaroslav Halak in Montreal. Uh, you've got a guy who's really rising through the ranks. You've got the Peter Morozik when he was in Detroit and playing really, really well. You've got the Tuka Rask, um, you know, in Boston. And remember, Tuka Rask is a guy that was traded uh, from Toronto to Boston because, again, he was part of that. I believe it was the Andrew Raycroft deal. Again, another goaltender who you're just going, wow, this is a really weird deal. And all of a sudden, Tuka Rask is consistently one of the best goalies in the NHL. You know, the, the next problem is now once you've got that goaltender, you've got the Sergei Bobrovsky that emerges, you've got the Carey Price that emerges, you've got the Roberto Luongo playing Super Bowl in Florida. How do we project goaltender performance? How do we evaluate how that goaltender is going to age? There's been some work done on goaltender aging curves. Um, you know, one of my friends, Josh, who, who used to write for Hockey Graphs and Lighthouse Hockey, did some work with goalie Marcells. I think Kim Lawrence did some goalie aging curves. But the the fact of the matter is the goalie aging curve doesn't really follow the same pattern or it's not nearly as accurate as it is with the skaters. And so 
you run into these instances where people are paying Jonathan Quick for 10 years. They're paying Carey Price for a number of years. They're paying Sergey Bobrovsky. And you see how quick that decline can happen, how, how quick the switch can flip. And I think one of the issues in particular with free agency and evaluating your goalies is because we don't have a great uh, assessment of how systems are designed in hockey and how that contributes to the data we measure or the data we, we visualize, we don't really do a good job of taking how one goaltender looks in one system and projecting how that goaltender looks in another system. And honestly, this was one of the big concerns with Robin Leonard this summer was people were going, all right, you're taking him out of Barry Trotz's system and you're going to drop him into Chicago, which is a very porous defense, much younger defense, much less structured. Is he going to be able to play the same way? You know, that's that that was a huge question. Obviously, Leonard was able to to a certain extent. But not only do you have that issue, you have that issue of kind of translating goalie performance from system to system. You have the issue of projecting how long a goalie is going to be able to sustain uh, you know their their performance. The last piece is is when we come to actually evaluating the goaltender performance in and of itself. One of the things we see is that the average goalie, when we measure it by goals above replacement, uh, which is the evolving wild model for for measuring kind of goaltender talent, the average goaltender is still well above zero value. And so what I mean by that is they're not the there are very few goalies that are actually providing you a net negative value. When you actually take all of the individual goaltender seasons from their model, you plot the distribution of those seasons, you actually find that the median sits at about, you know, 10, maybe 8 to 10 goals above replacement. And that's very, very impressive when you're talking about the goaltender. But what that also tells you is that between kind of that 75% upper bound of of the goaltenders down to maybe about the 25%, 25%, kind of that middle 50%, there's not a whole lot of variation with those goaltenders. And so why pay for a guy at the 75% mark when you may be able to pay for a guy at the 50% mark and get him for one third of the price? And so when you're kind of putting all those factors together, we don't know, we do a very poor job of projecting how long goaltenders are going to be good. We do a poor job of evaluating them at baseline. And we know that you know, at baseline, most goaltenders tend to provide above zero or a net positive value to the team. And third, we can't even identify the good ones out of juniors. It, it makes it a, a big crapshoot. And that's where I think a, a kind of a big focus of, of the future in hockey analytics will need to be is, is in, in identifying better goaltenders. But at this point in time, why spend draft capital on a player you're uncertain about uh, you know, you're basically rolling the dice, hoping they evaluate. Why spend, you know, millions of dollars on Sergei Bobrovsky when all of a sudden you realize you've got prospects coming up that are performing just as well as he is? I mean, Bobrovsky was not one of the better Florida net miners by the end of the season, and now Florida's thinking about if they get a, a you know a buyout from this um, kind of end of season turmoil here, they may be looking to use that on Sergei Bobrovsky, and so just putting everything together. It's just we there, there's too much uncertainty surrounding goaltenders for me to confidently allocate resources to them. Yeah, so just to kind of distill that down and, you know, kind of uh, 
you are not disputing the importance of a goalie to winning a hockey game. It's about the cost of acquiring a goalie who is believed to be good and the randomness in projecting him at the point that you have acquired him for what is usually a high cost. That's exactly it, because we know when we hit the playoffs, the reason why the best NHL team doesn't win as often as they should is often due to the hot goalie. Um, I mean, it's the go- it's the J.S. Jaguar in 2003, right. Yeah, or cold goalie, the goalie can't stop anything. I mean, it's, you know, Red Wings fans are more than familiar with this with the early 2000s, you know, running against J.S. Jaguar, running against Mika Kiprasov, you know, running against Dwayne Rolison. These are all goalies that just balled out for their teams. And, and it was absolutely unreal. And they completely stymied outstanding Red Wings hockey teams. But the problem was you couldn't predict who that goaltender was. Nobody knew that J.S. Jaguar was going to come. Not only were they were the Ducks going to sweep Detroit, at one point he had given up exactly one goal in the conference finals to the Minnesota Wild. Like, no one knew where he was coming from, and all of a sudden he has this kind of season. And, and Dwayne Rolison in 2006, when he does that to Detroit, he's, he's uh, 36 years old, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly. How do you expect him to turn that kind of season in for you? Uh, and so it's that randomness, it's the uncertainty. You just don't know enough to... Like, if I knew that when the Ducks drafted John Gibson, that he was going to be an absolute stud goaltender, and he was going to continue being a stud goaltender for this period of time, I would give him that money. And so if you're talking to me right now, I think the best goaltender in the NHL is arguably you know, John Gibson, Connor Hellebuck, those two guys right now. Do this as an exercise. Take the best goaltender, let's say the best defenseman, you know, right now, uh, you know, this year by most measures, you could say is Roman Yossi or, uh, you know, someone along those lines. And then let's take Connor McDavid as the best forward. How confident are you that each of those players is going to be an outstanding player or let's say within 90% of their current level in five years? I think you'd feel reasonably confident in that for Connor McDavid. You'd probably be 100% confident in that. You'd probably be about 80% confident in Roman Yossi. But do you have that same level of confidence in John Gibson or Connor Hellebuck? The answer is likely not. And that's where it comes down to you don't want to allocate term money because you just don't have that same you know, certainty that they're going to deliver that performance. And it does open you up to some level of risk too by taking that approach because if you if you know it, in theory the randomness should mean that you're able to find you know the Jordan Binningtons the kind of the cheap goalie who turns in a, a good playoff and maybe helps you win a cup but if you're playing that game it can be a little bit like playing roulette and and maybe you waste some years in your window without one but your point is that that risk is uh, less problematic than the opportunity cost of of directing limited resources toward uh, a, a, a position that is very hard to project and very expensive. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, last year, right, let's let's just take last season, for example. Everyone kind of painted this, uh, you know, painted Carolina the, as the team that was really doing this, that had really embraced this philosophy. They were going to go poach goaltenders out of uh, free agency. So that's where they, you know, they picked up Peter Morozik. Uh, you know, they picked up Curtis McElhaney off of waivers from Toronto when Toronto had too many goalies. And that was going to be their tandem. And, you know, a lot of people said, all right, well, Carolina's loaded up front. They're loaded on defense, but they need to be able to get a save. Well, you know, you come to the playoffs and all of a sudden Peter Morozik has has stonewalled, 
you know, the uh, Washington Capitals, and then all of a sudden they've, you know, swept the New York Islanders, and now they're sitting in a conference finals because they got those saves. And and it's, it's that kind of rolling the dice, betting on that randomness without allocating a lot of resources. They picked off Matt, they picked up McElhaney off of waivers. They picked up Mrazek for a couple million dollars on a show-me contract. This offseason, they do kind of the same thing. They let McElhaney walk as opposed to allocating more money than they would have had to the year before. And then they go and they flip Scott Darling to Florida to be able to get James Reimer as another backup. And now the duo of those two and Reimer's actually been outstanding for Carolina this year. And so Carolina's kind of embraced that I'm not going to allocate a ton of money because I know getting an average to above average name at a cheaper cost is ultimately going to provide me more bang for my buck than paying the high dollar for Sergei Bobrovsky than paying a long-term deal to, to Hellebuck, to Price, to any of these other guys. All right. Well, hopefully that kind of resolves that. I know, uh, you know, Eamon is one of our very uh, loyal listeners. So, Eamon, thanks for uh, getting us to, to do- dive more in depth there. Um, I still am someone who kind of generally, um, I, I agree with Prashant, I, I tend to, but I, I do think that there's, um, you know, there's a balance to be struck. I would not want to be entering the playoffs without a goalie I was confident in, and I certainly, you know, the anecdotal uh, side of this can, can cut both ways, but I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, when you have limited resources, whether that be in terms of a salary cap, whether that be in terms of high draft picks, um, I think there's a lot to be said with with going where you're where you're confident, and that can be it can read as risk averse to some, um, but you know it, it, there's risk in both directions. So I think that's important. It also does lead into what I want to be that kind of the, the focal point of the show today, which is the future of hockey analytics specifically. I've been reading an awesome book by Kylie McDaniel and Eric Longenhagen uh, called Future Value about baseball, um, and I, I love reading about baseball decision making, baseball analytics in particular. Because I think they're far ahead of hockey, and I think number one, baseball is a little bit easier to uh, to measure than hockey is. There's kind of more more isolatable um, variables, I think. But it kind of leads into where hockey can go next. Because when you look at the ways that they're able to make decisions in baseball, um, I want to know what it would take for hockey to have that level of insight for their decision makers. So I, is there anything, I guess, off the hop that when you think about the future of analytics, what are some things that you would like to be able to do that as of now we can't with numbers? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. I, I kind of alluded to one piece, obviously, with goaltenders, right. and, and I'll come back to that in, in a bit because I think that the first and, and biggest thing we really have to talk about is, is the tracking technology because that's that was ultimately – that's kind of a uh, another lost thought in all of this uh, hubbub with the NHL not being around right now. The tracking technology was going to roll out for the playoffs. Like that was the plan, and we were going to see what what that looked like. And so a lot of us are um, missing out on that opportunity and, and kind of what the broadcast side would have looked like. But you know, I think what a lot of people are thinking about with the tracking technology, and again, when I'm referring to tracking technology, this is the ability to know where the puck is at all times, like you're getting several different coordinates per second. So let's say you're giving maybe seven or eight different coordinate locations per second of ice time uh, in terms of where the puck is, where the players are, their their XY coordinates. You're getting coordinates for maybe even where the player's stick position is. Uh, And so what all of that ultimately offers you is a couple of things. And so I think first and foremost, a stat that's gotten very popular, I think, in hockey in the last couple of years, expected goals. And and quite simply, expected goals are, you know, based on, you know, who shot the puck, where they shot the puck from, 
you know, the situation, whether it's five on five, five on four, um, the type of shot they took, uh, you know, things along those lines, whether or not it was their off wing, uh, whether or not it was on the rush, it was on a rebound, things like that. Uh, you know, that all goes into the factors. And then we kind of assess the probability that that shot's going to go in. And that's what expected goals are. But there's kind of two big things missing from the expected goals. One is where is the goaltender? Uh, so a shot taken from the left faceoff dot on an empty net has the same expected goals. Uh, empty net being you're still at five on five, but let's say the goalie's falling down behind the net. Um, you know, that has the same expected goals as a five on five shot on a, on a one timer and the goalie's unscreened and, and he's in perfect position. That's got the same expected goals right now because we don't know where the goalie's located. And so some of what we can do with tracking technology is, and, and, you know, build things like a computer vision model, which if you guys haven't seen what a computer vision model is, I'd encourage you to check out Neil Johnson's presentation from the Columbus Blue Jackets Hockey Analytics Conference in February. He did an awesome demonstration of what this looks like in hockey and in the NBA, where essentially you can isolate where a player is and actually continue to get coordinates for not only where the player is physically located on the ice, but where their limbs are positioned, where maybe their stick is positioned, where their pads are positioned. And then at that point, if you've got the goaltender's position in addition to the shot location and, and all the other variables I described, you'll likely get a, you know, a potentially better or more accurate assessment of the probability of that shot going in. How much that actually moves the needle, I can't say. Maybe it's 10%, 15%, or maybe it's a much greater gain than that. Um, as right now, the current expected goals models are quite good in terms of comparison to actual goals scored. Uh, but that being said, I think that is a, a possibility to gain is just, number one, knowing the goaltender's position. The second thing I think we don't know with expected goals models is where's the puck coming from, right? So is this a, a cross-seam pass that's breaking down the defense, that's getting the goalie to move from left to right? And again, maybe we can quantify the distance the goalie has to move to put themselves in position from a shot or a great presentation that again was done at the Columbus Blue Jackets Hockey Analytics Conference. It was done by Cole Anderson and, and one of the presentations he did is using SportLogic, which is one of the tracking technology companies, using their kind of assessment of goaltender positioning. He was actually able to kind of quantify how far away a goaltender was from optimal position. And, and again, knowing where the puck is coming from uh, you know, what kind of breakout pass it is, if it's a cross-slot pass, if it's a, you know, pass from behind the net, and what those coordinates look like, you're going to be able to create clusters and, again, identify high-danger passing areas that are being passed into certain dangerous areas for, for goals. And then I think the last piece in, in all of that is you see some guys like Austin Matthews when they shoot the puck and you'll watch that when they go to line up that shot, maybe it's their wrist shot, they'll actually pull the puck kind of across their body to a certain extent and can move the puck by as much as, you know, four or five feet in just a matter of a second right before they release the shot. It makes it a lot more difficult to, for a goaltender to pick up that shot, and that's based on just kind of goalies saying that that they have more trouble picking up those those releases. And again, that's something you might be able to quantify that and actually take that and turn that into a teachable measure uh, when you're training, you know, these younger players coming up saying, hey, if you pull the puck, you know, a couple of feet and change the angle of that release, 
you're going to have a higher likelihood of being able to score. And ultimately what that all translates into is where you're at kind of now with baseball, where you've got guys like Justin Verlander studying pitch FX data to better understand spin rate velocity, exit, you know, exit velocity out of his hand uh, to kind of get a better assessment of what he's doing so he can be a better player. And I think that's kind of a big area we're missing right now is translating that to, to tangible player skills. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. I also think, you know, I I love expected goals as a stat. I think it's the best descriptive stat really out there right now. Um, But I also think it it lacks a lot in what we can isolate about particular players. I mean, it's it's helpful to know how teams are faring in terms of chance creation and quality of chance creation when they're on the ice. I would love to know how much of an individual role players play in those chances. How many of the Redmonds expected goals come on, you know, primary shots created, for example, or, or where is the player when all of these are happening? Would there be a way to isolate um, scoring chances on screens by players who are in front of the net to identify players who are maybe affecting a lot of shots on goal without necessarily tipping it? Um, things like that De- defensively, you know, how many expected goals are coming off a play that, you know, could be kind of categorized as a missed play versus how many are, are just going to happen. Um, you know, I, I think there's some degree of that where you can rely on kind of baked in, um, you know, evening out process over time, uh, to, to kind of account for, you know, it's, it's unlikely players are getting burned on luck constantly over years, but, um, in, in a smaller sample, I think it's very interesting to know descriptively how responsible players were for both good and bad, uh, expected goals instances, uh, for their team. So that's something I'm really interested in player tracking. I'm also interested in being able to isolate kind of skills like they're able to in baseball. So you sometimes in baseball, you'll see them kind of be able to, in a matter of seconds, um, know the distance of uh, a ball kind of traveled based on the launch angle, the exit velocity, able to identify how far and fast a player ran down a, a, a catch in the outfield. I'd love to be able to isolate, you know, the burst in a in a McDavid, um, you know, straightaway, or, or or why someone is able to create separation. If it, you know, all of these things that I think player tracking helps us do better. We can, to some degree, do them. You'll see things about you know clocking guys as is, but I just think we could do all that better with player tracking. I think that is important to the future of analytics. None of that, though, I think is quite as important as what progress analytically would do for drafting. And since that is an area of of expertise for you already, I'm curious. I know there's not a lot of analytics available about a lot of draftable prospects. What What can teams do better? What do you see the future of drafting looking like as teams get more and more uh, analytically inclined? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. And right now, I think people, for those who have not spent a lot of time kind of looking at prospect data or or just looking at the information you get from other leagues, you know, right now, outside of the Canadian major junior leagues, and, and really it's the QMJHL and the OHL and, and the WHL is kind of a little bit behind um, in that regard, you don't get much beyond uh, just points, goals, assists, height, weight, uh, age, uh, maybe a couple of other things you can isolate or scrape from a from a, a kind of a league's website. Uh, the QMJHO, the OHO, you can get a little bit more into situational stuff. So you can look at kind of even strength data. You can uh, you can get Corsi to a certain extent, although it's mostly just shots and, and uh, shots on goal, I should say, and not specifically Corsi, which includes all shots attempted. Um, you know, there are 
coordinates available for the OHL to be able to build a expected goals model to a, to a, a certain extent um, to get you a little bit more data. But the problem that you then run into is it's, it's hard to compare that player to the player in the MHL, which is one of the uh, junior leagues, or I should say one of the kind of lower leagues in Russia, where you get absolutely nothing of the sort. Um, or, you know, comparing it to another league that kind of a much smaller league or even the NCAA where, again, we don't have a lot of data. And so for the most part, if you're trying to make a clear comparison of all players um, that are going to be draft eligible, really the root of what you're doing it with is their age, their weight, their height, um, you know, the amount of goals they scored, their assists. And, and their points, because you don't even have ice time, you don't have anything like that. And that's basically how you're making your projections. And so there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to not only one, get you better data by doing some tracking for you. A company like Hockey Data Inc. is, is doing that. And, and there's some other companies out there that are also trying to get more information on prospects. But bottom line, uh, you know, any amount of data that's beyond goals, assists, points, height, weight, and age, would be absolutely huge for a lot of teams to be able to to build better assessments um, because again, in addition to everything a scout sees, in addition to everything that your general manager, your assistant general manager, everybody sees, you want to be able to back that up with numbers uh, and and be able to use the two together to make good, well informed decisions. And, and right now, the basis of that data is just not great to make great decisions. And that's why I think a lot of people who do um, kind of analytical draft work, they'll tell you that if they're building a model to project prospects, the model is kind of better paired with your scouting data, and it may be more informative on players that you didn't get to see, and maybe it's better utilized in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round, because uh, again, you're not going to be able to see all 17,000 players that are eligible for the draft. And so if you're looking for guys that maybe popped high on the model and you didn't get to see as much or saw once or twice and you're in the third or fourth round and you want to take a shot. I mean, that's that's kind of really where draft analytics is now. But I think there's a lot of room to grow there for skaters and then goaltenders. I mean, there's the, you know, the sky's the limit right now. Yeah. And, I, you know, in the book, one of the things that interests me is kind of how certain teams, it, it says, have kind of zeroed in on certain profiles they can identify analytically. So for some teams, that might be really young players. So you're thinking of basically your Quinton Byfields, who, and maybe Byfields a bad example because he's at the top of the draft, but, you know, pick your guy who's got an August birthday and, and you'll see that the fact that, you know, he's basically you know, at least six months, sometimes a year younger than the rest of the class, 11 months younger than the rest of the class, uh, he's got so much room to grow. And, you know, you know, you can kind of have a preference for that with the more you're able to analyze. You're obviously not going to draft someone on their birthday alone, but if they seem to have kind of the right underlying metrics, uh, if they seem to have kind of a body that's going to project to develop more, you know, sometimes teams will fixate on, like you t- mentioned, the spin rate, um, high velocity, things like that, things that can be indicators, a frame, um, I think all of those things are interesting profiles. I also think I've been struck by reading the book. There's kind of a they, they paint a scene of an MLB draft room, you know, for for um, the Braves. One of the authors used to work for the Braves, and they they're going around the room and they're they're talking about a guy that a lot of the scouts really like, and they know that the likelihood is that there's a couple of analytic things that are kind of red flags. And so the, the kind of underlying idea is that um, there's some nervousness from the scouts as the GM kind of looks over to the the designated kind of analytics expert in the room to be like, 
what do you think? Can we take this guy? And, you know, the analytics guy kind of goes, well, you're telling me that this guy is a, you know, big, good catcher. I don't remember what the position was, but I'm just going to say, let's say it was that. And they all go, yeah. And he goes, yeah, we have to take him, you know, this late. You know, there's there, there of course, there's little things in the data, but um, everything you're telling me, that sounds like a great value in this round from everything we know. So the collaboration between scouting and analytics, I think, is, is a huge takeaway from baseball and a huge thing that um, as, as hockey goes forward, I think is important to keep integrating, too. I mean, there's certainly there's teams that need to rely on, you know, slight advantages they can get. But at some point, and this has probably happened in baseball, Ball is one of the one of the uh, messages early in the book so far. Every everyone has it, and it's no longer a competitive edge to have analytics. Now it's you got to have better analytics, or you got to better integrate them. And so I think that the teams that are able to best integrate their scouting, their analytics, and kind of anything else that needs to come into that factor, whether it's the mechanics or sorry, not the make the makeup of a of a, of a player and a person or what, um, the teams that best integrate all of that are probably going to succeed. So I think those are kind of some of the big takeaways I've had so far. Yeah, I completely agree. I can't, you know, echo that last point enough where I think ultimately the teams that are going to do the best job are going to be the teams that marry the kind of intellectual feel for the game that a lot of these scouts, general managers, assistant general managers, hockey personnel have. I mean, there it's it's not like the analytics people are trying to walk in and say this is the only way to evaluate people, I think. What you want to do is you want to have that perfect environment or situation where you have those incredibly smart people that know the intricacies of the game, really understand the feel, the, the skills that they think are translatable, and you want to support them with, all right, this is kind of what the data is showing us. This is the objective data that we've measured, and, and this is kind of what it's telling us, and how do we put those two puzzle pieces together uh, to make you know, this great picture and to make the, the best selection we can. And I think it's the team that finds the right balance of that. Um, and not only just with the players to draft, but also the draft strategy. And I think you've seen it show up to a certain extent with Carolina, a team will continue to really toot their horn because I think they've done an outstanding job. I think they've got kind of the right picture of what you're looking for. I mean, you saw them absolutely run the board with the draft last year from they knew the players they wanted, they knew this, they knew where they could get them, and they knew how to get the draft capital and assets to be able to continue to move around pieces to, to get where they needed to go. And, and that's kind of the environment you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that's kind of one of the things that maybe gets misconstrued sometimes is that they're, you know, it's a battle between scouting a player and knowing the kind of the analytics or the, or even sometimes just the stats in some cases. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think that's an either or. I think any scout that I really want scouting for me is going to be interested in, in every piece of information they can find. And I think a lot of them are. Like, I think it's a mistake to think that scouts only believe in the eye test. I mean, a lot of scouting, the, the reason that the Red Wings have Tyler Bertuzzi on their roster is because they did really ground back, really good background work to know a lot about the kid and how he was going to succeed. And so they drafted him. They drafted him higher than I think, uh, if I remember right, than people wanted at the time, you know. But they did their prep work. They knew what they were doing, and they got a guy who maybe once sounded like a reach now looks like a steal. So it's it's always going to be a marriage, and you're going to want scouts who are open to data. Maybe maybe not all of them have to be you know analytics guys, but they they you you want the buy-in from all parts, and you want the analytics side to really respect the scouting intuition because that sometimes is intangible. You can't always measure how good your scouts are at seeing something. A lot of them have watched a lot of hockey, and you got to know when to trust them, and you got to know um, what to trust them on. So. I think that's all very important, and I, I think you know the, the 
the best organizations going forward are going to do it all. Anything else on this topic before we get moving on? I just have to make this mention because this is one of my other favorite tidbits of information for those of you that aren't familiar with this. So, so you know, Max, you, you brought up Tyler Bertuzzi, right? So the Red Wings took him second in the second round, 58th overall. Uh, you know, we did a big debrief on the NHL Central um, you know, scouting database, and they published their kind of final rankings. Tyler Bertuzzi was 207th on North American skaters on their final list. Right. Right, and he wouldn't have come up on analytics. He wouldn't have come up on raw central scouting, but he comes up because you do all the work, you get all the information possible, uh, and that's how you that's how you land your players. And it's not perfectly repeatable. You're going to have flaws. You're going to make bad picks because of analytics. You're going to make bad picks because of the eye picks or because of the eye test. You're going to make great picks because of analytics, and you're going to make great picks because of the eye test, and you're going to make bad picks because of information gathering and great ones because of that. So. You have to be you have to be willing to live with both, and you have to know the strengths of all of it and tie it together. It sounds incredibly complicated. That's because it is. Exactly. Yep. All right. Uh, all right. We got one more thing here before we get into the questions, and this is pretty fun. This came from one of our listeners, uh, Russ Ivanek, who him and his friends created a. Um, kind of a series of, of Red Wings teams based on jersey numbers. And it's not like guys who wore the exact jersey number, but it's guys who wore jersey numbers that end in the same digit. So like the, the, the players who wore numbers 9, 19, 29, 39, 49, 59, etc. will be on one team, uh, you know, 1, 11, 21, etc. right? So, so like that. And we've kind of picked what we think are the six best of those teams in Red Wings history. And we want to have a little bracket for them. I think we've kind of given a bye to the, the, the Team 9 and Team 5. So that would be Team 9 is obviously your, your Steve Eiserman, Gordy Howe-led team. Team 5 is your Nick Littstrom-led team. Um, let's move into into some of these kind of play-in games to get to the semifinals. Uh, so so the Team 4 versus the Team 3. Who do you uh, you want to lay out the rosters for us there? Yeah, so Team 4 uh, is also very much loaded because, again, when you're in Red Wings history, you've got everybody uh, you want so the starting players for for team four is Brendan Shanahan, Gustav Nyquist, Todd Bertuzzi. It's kind of the the one limitation to uh, this team. You don't have a natural center on this roster, um, but on defense, arguably one of the best defensive pairings here in Red Kelly and Chris Chelios. In goal, you've got Manny Legacy, who again, you know, going back to our earlier discussion on goaltenders, if you want to talk about scenarios where you bought low on goaltending and hoped it would work out and it backfired. Manny Legacy was that for the Red Wings in the early, uh, or I should say mid-2000s. But on the bench, you've also got Bob Probert and Mark Howe. So very loaded roster, suspect goaltending though. Uh, You come over to Team 3 and you go, wow, this is a loaded team as well. It's Pavel Datsuk, Johan Franzen, Slava Kozlov. So very strong up front. Uh, You've got Matthew Schneider, who I think was very underrated on defense, had an absolute cannon of a shot, along with Marcel Pronovost. Goaltender, though, you know, in, in Red Wings history, there has not been a goaltender that has a jersey number that ends in three. So uh, these guys, Russ and his friends, have decided to make Chris Draper the goaltender uh, for this team. And then on the bench, you've got Darren Helm and Steve Chasen. Uh, so, you know, team four versus team three, it's uh, you've got Manny Legacy, which is at least a goaltender for team four, versus team three that is using Chris Draper in goal. Max, who do you think... Uh, pulls out a, a seven-game series or a playing game here. Well, I'll say this. If you're putting Chris Draper in the net, then Team 4 is going to win. But I think if you treat this like a 6-on-5 and you just pull the goalie for Chris Draper, 
Then I think you start to see a pretty interesting gameplay out here because you got a couple of great defensive forwards. Pavel Datsuk, one of the best defensive forwards of his era, and Chris Draper, who you know certainly didn't lack in that department. Uh, Slava Kozlov, Johan Franzen are, are very good players, and then Matthew Schneider and Marcel Pronovost, who I believe is a Hall of Famer, out yes. there. Then I think this becomes a game. Then I think you, you have a real, you know, late in the game, our Brennan Shanahan, Gus Nyquist, Red Kelly, Chris Chelios, Todd Bertuzzi going to be able to get the puck up the ice in order to score? The answer is probably yes, but six on five is harder than I think it gets made out to be sometimes. And certainly, you know, they can always just ice it until they score. Maybe that works. I think Team 4 comes out ahead for that reason, but I think it's a better game uh, than it might seem if, if you just play it six on five. Yeah, I mean, six on five would be very fascinating to watch for this because, you know, like you said, team three would play with the puck a whole lot of the time. I mean, you know, you've got Datsy with a Selkie. Draper is obviously an outstanding defensive forward. Kozlov is very underrated. You know, he was absolutely dynamite for the Wings in the late 90s. And then Franzen, we've talked about him a lot, absolute rocket of a shot. And Schneider and Pronovost, I mean, you're going to have to puck a lot. And, and the forward group for team four, while good, Brendan Shanahan's obviously a Hall of Famer, 650 goal scorer, very good winger. You know, Bertuzzi was also an outstanding winger, and Nyquist, you know, is is great in his own right. They're not really on the same caliber as that other team, but, you know, like you said, Max, I think if I was picking it, it'd probably be like 9-5 for, for team, uh, team 4. Yeah, I think the, the, the two Hall of Fame defensemen for Team 4 ultimately is going to kill Team 3's chances of, of getting enough goals, enough of a lead early to hang on with the empty net. So uh, I think Team 4 comes out ahead there, but um, a very interesting uh, experiment. How about Team 1, which might be my dark horse, versus Team 7? Yeah, Team 1 is uh, a lot of fun. So up front, you've got Sergei Fedorov, Thomas Tatar, and Dylan Larkin. So man, can that line fly. Uh, but on defense, you've got Matthew Dandino. And Dennis Chalowski, uh, which is very suspect. Uh, but in goal, to bail them out, you have Terry Sawchuk. And, and Max, to be quite honest, this is a team that, you know, maybe you put Sergei Fedorov on defense because on the bench. I was just going to say that. You've yep. got Marion Hossa and Adam Oates. And so you, you're going to go, you know, maybe you, uh, you play Sergei Fedorov on defense in, in place of Dennis Chalowski. And Matthew Dandino actually was the original kind of. Dustin Bufflin type player, Brent Burns type player, where he played defense, he played forward. You could have really a, a five-man unit with Fedorov, Tatar, Larkin, Dandino, and Hosa, and have those guys play with the puck nonstop. I mean, that would be loads of fun to watch. Um, you know, I think that would be a very difficult team to beat, but their opponent would be Team 7, a little bit more old school. Uh, so you've got Frank Mahovlich. Hall of Famer, Ted Lindsay, Hall of Famer, Brett Hall, Hall of Famer. On defense, you go Paul Coffey, Hall of Famer, uh, with his D partner being Willie Huber. And then in goal, you have Vincent Rendeau, who again, for those of you who are not familiar, hasn't played for the Wings in a really, really long time. Uh, I thought that was an interesting pick. I thought you could have gone with Bill Ranford here. I believe he wore 37 as well, if I remember correctly. Um, my, my, my memory could be deceiving me. But even on the bench, you've also got some, some great talent in Norm Ullman and Gerard Gallant. So, all right, Max, in this, uh, in this one versus seven, uh, seven looks loaded up front, but so does one. Uh, who are you going to give the edge to? 
Well, I love your tactic of playing Fedorov back on D because that's a tactic that when when we went back and watched that uh, Avalanche game is one of the things that stood out to me is Fedorov playing defense. I didn't know that it ever happened. And I think it's brilliant because it really does allow you to get another awesome player. Whether you pick Marion Hosa or Adam Oates, I don't think you're going to go wrong by doing that. And then with Terry Sawchuk in net, you know, it, it's a real advantage to be able to play, you know, fast and, and very offensive hockey, even for the forward at um, you know, playing defense. So my first instinct is to lean with number one, but I am thinking about just Brett Hull ripping one-timers from Paul Coffey. Uh, anytime Team 7 gets a power play, I think it's in the net. So it, it's going to be close. I'm, I'm going to lean Team 1. Team 1's going to get my vote. But, um, man, Team 7, it, if you take too many penalties on them, you're going to lose. Yeah, I mean, I have a tough time because, you know, as much fun as Team 1 is, you know, we have to remember everybody on Team 7 up front is a Hall of Famer. And yeah. and Tatar, great player in his own right. Dylan Larkin, very fast, great player. Neither of them are likely to be on that Hall of Fame level. I'm just going to say that. Uh, and you're putting them against Ted Lindsay, arguably one of the greatest Red Wings of all time. Frank Mahovlich, which outstanding scorer, Hall of Famer, and Brett Hull, 700 goal scorer. So, I don't know. I mean... I, I think the goaltending is where I'm going to, you know, lean towards uh, Team 1. I think I feel a little bit more comfortable with uh, Terry Sawchuk. And if I put Sergei Fedorov on defense and get to elevate Marian Hosa, who I believe is a Hall of Famer, uh, into the starting lineup, then, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on Team 1 here. Yeah, I will add that caveat for sure. I'm not picking Team 1 if I have to play um, with the defense as is. I'm only doing it if I can make that swap so I can add Marion Hosa into the lineup uh, as well and, and get Fedorov back on the blue line where I think he can still be every bit as impactful. So that is the caveat I'll make. If we have to do them as they have them listed, which does not have that, then I'm taking Team 7. But if we can make that lineup decision, then we'll go with Team 1. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna say that that lineup decision is okay. And so if we advance Team 1, they would advance to play first team on the bye, which is Team 9. So Team 9 is, is the fun team. It's, it's obviously Gordie Howe, uh, Steve Eiserman, Anthony Mantha. But on defense, uh, you get a little, bit, uh, a little bit older here. You've got Gilbert Delhomme, and then you've got Randy Ladecourt. Uh, both number 29, and most of you probably don't remember them because they didn't play a ton of games for the Red Wings. But in goal, you get Dominic Hasek. Uh On the bench, you've got Tyler Bertuzzi and, and Jason Williams, who uh, was one of the more forgettable players for the Red Wings, but still had a good shot. So he's, a, he's not a bad player. So Max, Team 9, Team 1 here. I may be trying to make another slight lineup tweak here with Team 9. All right, what are you doing? Um, I may be trying to put Anthony Mantha back on the blue line for I go either way on those guys, maybe for Delorme and putting Bertuzzi in up front to play with Eiserman and Howe and having Mantha kind of be your your quarterback up top. Uh, you do lose a little bit of size and ability to to play you know down low, but I think the more valuable ability is is him ripping shots from the point. He's got a deadly shot from outside. So does Steve Eiserman. Fair enough, but um, I I think that tweak allows you to uh, maybe get more talent into the lineup again. I'm probably going to go with Team 9 here, uh, Dominic Koshik being a huge reason why, but I don't think the goaltending difference is as, as as stark as it is in any of the previous matchups we've done. So 
I'm going to, first of all, ask permission to do that. And then even though Mantha hasn't played defense in a game, as Fedorov had, um, and then if, if so, then I'm going to give a slight nudge to Team 9. Otherwise, I might consider Team 1. I don't think they're going to get it done, but uh, it, it does become a conversation. Both of these teams have, have issues on defense. Yeah, I mean, I think we do have to factor in the difficulty it is for a player to play defense. I mean, not everyone's trained to be able to skate. You know, the reason Fedorov could do it was he was just an unbelievable skater. And so the ability to to skate backwards consistently like that, the ability to maintain distances, things along those lines. I mean, you could put Mantha back there. I think I'd probably vote against that simply because if we're trying to maintain some some semblance of positions here, I can at least buy a Fedorov going back to D. I don't know about Mantha. I think the other thing we have to talk about when you're evaluating this is do you get the player at their peak career or do you get the player at their peak Red Wing? Because uh, if you get them at their peak Red Wing, I think I have to pick Team 1. Hashik, as great as he was when he came to Detroit, he was 39 years old. Uh, you know, he was he was very much on the older side on his way towards being done with his career. Uh, I don't know that I can pick that team if I have to commit myself to that D group because I think if I can move Fedorov to defense on Team 1, I think just that Team 1 is going to play with the puck all the time, even going against Howe and Iserman. The more I think about this, man, Team 7 would match up really well here too if they just had a goalie. I mean, the, the the fact that they're trotting out so many Hall of Famers plus call, Paul Coffey on the blue, I mean, also a Hall of Famer, but so many Hall of Famers up front plus Paul Coffey, the, the lack of goalie here might honestly cost Team 7 a, a real shot at the championship because uh, I think they'd have matched up great here as well. It's just hard for me to go against... Eiserman and Howe, right? Yeah, but like, there's there's Hall of Famers all around. I mean, it's... Yeah, I, I, I'll take Team Nine, but it, this is a this is an overtime game. All right, and then come down to our other game here, Team Five versus Team Four, which advance. So Team Five up front, you've got Marcel Dion, you've got John Ogrodnik, you've got Darren McCarty. The blue line here, you've got Nick Lidstrom. Uh, Russ and his friends made the decision to insert Nicholas Cronwall. I might opt for one of their bench players and Larry Murphy. Um, but in goal, you've got Jimmy Howard, and then the other bench player being Pat Verbeek. So, Max, five versus four. And, and to remind everybody, uh, team four here is Shanahan, Nyquist, Todd Bertuzzi, Red Kelly, Chris Chelios, Manny Legacy. Max, who you got? I like team five. I think it's it's perfectly well-rounded. They've got everything. They've got flash. They've got grit. They've got defense. Uh, you know, goaltending, I, I think Howard and Legacy is pretty close to a wash. Um, so even though, you know, I, I guess the same can be said for team four. You know, I, I do like the Shanahan Bertuzzi. They don't have a true center per se, but I think Nyquist could do it capably. They've got good depth off the bench with Mark Howe. This is another overtime game. I think I'm going to lean team five. But um, another, just a great game here. Yeah, I think I got to lean Team 5 here. I, I think Howard is is a notch above Manny Legacy. Just watching him, I think the defense here is also huge with Evan Lidstrom and, and Larry Murphy uh, and with Nick Cronwell being the third guy to rotate in. Uh, Darren McCarty and Pat Verbeek are absolutely going to cause havoc and chaos. I mean, uh, having McCarty with a guy who's nicknamed the Little Ball of Hate, I mean, this is... Just so much fun. You've obviously got a 700-goal scorer in Marcel Dion, and, and Grodnick was a great goal scorer in his own right. So 
yeah, I think I got to lean Team Five here. All right, so we're down to our top two seeds, which may be a little bit of self, a little bit self defeating. I mean, hey, I, I picked Team One. I picked Team One. Let's just put that out there. But I'm going to let you move Team Nine ahead. Do you want to go Team One? I'm fine with that. I don't know. I mean, like I said, it just depends on how you're going to do it. I think if I get to move Federer off to the back end, I think I think Team One is more solid. I'm I'm still playing a try game in my head between teams f- uh, one, seven, and nine. So like, <laughs> I, I'm fine with a toss up here. Yeah, I mean, I really do think it's it's a total toss up, but it'd be I think any team could really come through there. I think uh, you know I think for our purpose, let's let's move nine so we can go nine and five. All right, so uh, all right, so team nine versus team five. So just a refresher: you got Gordy Howe, Steve Eiserman, Anthony Mantha, Gilbert Delorme, uh, Randy Laduser. Is that how you say that? I think so. Something along uh, and those Dominic, lines. Dominic Hasek with a bench of Tyler Bertuzzi and Jason Williams versus for team five: Marcel Dion, John O'Grodnick, Darren McCarty, Pat Verbeek, Larry Murphy, Nick Lidstrom, Nick Cronwall, and Jimmy Howard. Yeah, I mean, I got I got to lean Team Nine here. I think the goaltending plus the depth up front, I think, is going to make the difference. I think how Eiserman Mantha is, is a notch above what you've got for Team Five. The defense, obviously, for Team Five, substantially better. I think the forwards are more likely to make the bigger impact, though. The forwards are better. The D is outstanding, though. Like we're, we're talking about one of the two or three best defense defensemen of all time in Nicholas Lidstrom. Uh, I know you have some some top ten all time players on on your group of the forwards for Team Nine. My inclination here on first look is to go with Team Five because of how well rounded they are. Now there's a pretty stark advantage in, in goal for uh, Team Nine, and and I would call it a a healthy advantage at forward. But I think it's like a world of difference on D. Yeah, it just comes down to which positions you think really are going to drive, uh, you know, the the difference here. And and to me, I think. The forwards are ultimately what's going to drive the difference with the goaltending being, you know, there to bail them out. I mean, you know, part of the part of my morbid curiosity with, um, you know, the NHL kind of being out of season right now is I really wish they would just go back and give us kind of the the deeper uh, data for the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, compare all these historical teams, because I can I can surely bet that Dominic Koshik was carrying trash teams night in and night out to the Stanley Cup Finals. And so even though I don't have a great defensive group here, I think Hasek plus those forwards is all I need. All right, fair enough. Uh, all right, you ready to go to the listener question? So wait, so we're crowning Team uh, Team 9? Yeah, I think we'll, we'll crown Team yeah. 9 because I can't pick against Dominic Hasek. All right, and then we'll go to the listener questions. All right. Um, so the first one, this is a, a shout-out So uh, to Dave Coyle. Uh, Dave, your son Kevin uh, wanted us to give you a shout-out today. And then he also asked uh, a Q&A, when will Dylan Larkin get the C with all of this going on? It's a great question. I think part of the reason why it didn't happen this year was you kind of wanted to spare him from that responsibility. I think you know maybe the Wings organization had an, had an idea of, of – how this season was going to go and and you don't really want to put that responsibility on him. I mean, I think everybody remembers, you know, the 2018, 2019 season and just the look on Nick Cronwall's face or the 17, 18 season and the look on Henrik Zetterberg's face every time they had to answer the questions about why this team wasn't winning. I think that really would have weighed a lot on Larkin. There was actually that great, you know, clip of Larkin sitting on the bench just with his head in his hands after another, you know, blown lead 
Uh, I think it just would have been too much. That being said, I think it could happen as early as next season. Um, I think once you've locked down the core with Mantha and Bertuzzi, uh, I think you've established that you've probably got to go ahead with Larkin at this point. Yeah, I, I think I expect it to begin next season. I, I think he, he showed what he needed to show this year, and I did a story right before uh, the shutdown about um, how this season has kind of really hardened him, and I, I think it's something that when I when I talked to Gabriel Landeskog about what he got out of the Avalanche's really brutal season, and then talked to, you know and, and talked to Larkin. I, I don't remember which order I did it, but you know they were there was a lot of rhyme there, and I think he will grow into that type of leader. And I think he I think he's shown that this year that, that he's capable of doing that. I'm sure there's little things here and there. Uh, he's obviously a very demonstrative player, and I think there's probably differing opinions on on the place for that. That. personally i'm not someone who who would mind it but i'm sure there are um but i i don't think that can be the question of whether or not to make someone captain do you no and and all of that all-star drama was completely blown out of proportion I oh mean, yeah, yeah. Pe- people forget i mean datsuk and lidstrom took the suspensions so they didn't have to go play at the all-star game i mean they were chosen and declined and all larkin said is please don't choose me i mean what, what would have been the difference if larkin had been chosen and then took the suspension because he didn't want to go. Like, I mean, it, it's all the same. I mean, Lidstrom and, and Datsuk did it. They used to routinely do it. So I have no problem with that. That doesn't reflect on leadership whatsoever. No, I don't think so either. So, yeah, I, I would say I would say sooner than later. Uh, probably to begin next season would be my guess, but obviously we don't know. Um, Matthew Lang says, how much do you disagree with uh, the draft lottery chance percentage? And if it were up to you to set the number of lottery balls for picks one through five. So I guess I, I guess he's saying in an alternate world, picks one through five, uh, what would the percentages be? Or you can just do it as it is one through three. What should the percentages be? Yeah, I mean, I very much disagree with how much the pendulum has swung this way, I think it's made it more difficult for teams to dig themselves out of holes. And now with 32 NHL teams, it's, I mean, you're really running the the, the likelihood that a, a team's not going to be good for a really long time. And you really just got to hope that uh, you hit lottery luck and it all works out. But you could even be a team like New Jersey that continues to hit lottery luck and is still going nowhere. Um, so I, I think the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in terms of being anti-tanking. And what I'd really like to see is some version of, you know, gold drafting with some caveat or a multiplier maybe for to kind of avoid the really, really awful teams. Um, you know, maybe there's like a 1.05 multiplier for the, the you know, the worst team uh, or the first team to clinch and maybe a 1.04 multiplier for the you know, the next team or something along those lines. I haven't really thought that all the way through. But, you know, because the one downside to the, the goal draft is that even a team like Detroit, um, you know, even if they were the first team to clinch and allowed to start accruing points a month before everyone, they might just be so bad that they can't win games to accrue points. And so you still have to find a way to protect those teams to a certain extent. So I think maybe adding a multiplier of some sort to, to still get that there. But I think that's the closest thing I can think of to a fair draft system that is both anti-tanking but supportive of teams that uh, are not good and need that draft help. I think that's fair. You know, I think the system they have right now is is effective for what kind of the goal is to to, to discourage tanking, right? I just think it. I, I agree. I think that as a as a goal is maybe a little bit. Um, 
too too prioritized in all of this like i would say you know if if you're the one of the three to four worst teams in the league you should have a better than not chance of getting a top three pick and i don't think it needs to be a hundred percent chance by any means but it probably a better than not because even if you're gonna say teams tank and even if you want there to be a possibility they can't get that kind of number one mcdavid level player be just because they tried to to lose so much um you know no team that's like has a real honest chance at a championship tanks. So yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And I think on a larger scale, at some point we should have a discussion about what's the problem with tanking because well, you look at a team like Edmonton, right? Right. You know, you can tank, you get your player, but have you sacrificed the culture of winning so much to a certain extent that you can't dig yourself out? You look at a team like Buffalo, Buffalo can't turn the corner whatsoever. So is the price that you pay for tanking enough? Like, I mean, the the deterioration of the winning attitude, the winning mindset. I mean, how many teams can you think of tanked, got their player, and bounced right back out? And and the answer is, is not many, I mean, that I can think of. And so I personally believe if you want to have a team tank, fine, tank. But look at what it does to your, your organization, your system. The, the view of the organization from the outside. Are you going to be able to bring free agents there? Uh, I, I think there are ramifications associated with tanking that are a punishment enough outside of needing to, to further punish lottery rank, lottery odds. I can get on board with that, especially from, an, from a team-specific perspective. But I, I would say, to play devil's advocate here, the art, the counter is about the league and the health of the league and not wanting to have too many teams not going for it. I would say just as like a baseball follower, too many teams in baseball are not going for it in any given year. And part of that, I think, is because it's harder. Fewer teams make the playoffs in baseball. And so maybe there's more incentive to, at the beginning of the year, kind of just rule it out mentally. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say teams are like outright tanking. But, but in terms of not trying to get markedly better, not trying actively to kind of make the playoffs it does make for a lot less watchable teams like say what you will about you know the ottawa senators or even this year's red wings man the detroit tigers were really really hard to watch last year and i i don't think you want to get to a point maybe some of that's inherent and just hockey being a more exciting sport so even when the team's getting getting beaten pretty badly there's still kind of exciting things happening every night um but man i would say there is there is a little bit of a of a league risk to too many teams making that perfectly rational from an individual level decision to tank. But maybe, maybe it becomes kind of a, a collective action problem. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I think the problem with baseball and tanking is you don't have enough teams making the playoffs, which, again, I actually, if, if I had a perfect world, I would rather have fewer teams make the playoffs. Uh, that being said, with half the teams in the NHL making the playoffs, I don't know that you have the same problem, uh, at least in the first half of the season, because, again, the, the whole – you know, premise is anyone can make it. Any, you know, you you talk about the St. Louis Blues being in last place in December and and winning the Stanley Cup in, in 2018, 2019. I think there's enough of that mentality. I think there's the the playoff revenue, the fact that look, you know, you what rightly or wrongly, teams may frame this as I've got a 50 50 shot uh, to make the playoffs. Now, if a team wants to come out outright and say I'm completely abandoning any hope of that and and, and go full out in the tank. I think there are ramifications associated with that decision that impact the organization, the organization to the rest of the league and to other players that I think that almost serves as punishment enough. But it's a it's an interesting debate for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's fair. Uh, all right, Jack says, what specific things does Evgeny Svechnikov need to do to make an impact at the NHL level? Um, you know, he's basically curious what he's missing to take the next step. Uh, stay healthy, stay healthy, and get a roster spot open. Uh, I think are honestly the biggest things. I think he's had the ability to compete for a roster spot for the last couple of years. I think ultimately the Wings elected instead of automatically advancing him, they, they you know turned it into a little bit more of a competition, and you know he wasn't able to to crack that there. I, I, I truly believe he should have been up in. Uh, 2016, 2017, uh, you know, with the team. But uh, that being said, I, I really just think at this point you have to hand him an opportunity and and just let him see what he does. I think you're at you're past the point of being able to just keep him in the AHL without him becoming a career AHL player. Uh, I think let him use this offseason to fully rehab the knee, make sure he's feeling really good, and then basically put some confidence into him by saying, hey. The plan is we're starting with you in the starting lineup, uh, you know, in in Detroit on the active roster. It's your job to keep that spot. Maybe work at a little bit of a reverse psychology kind of perspective. Yeah, I think that's fair to infuse the confidence. And, you know, he's someone who I think does work hard and you want to make sure he's not putting too much pressure on himself, too, especially considering everything his body has been through. But, you know. I, I think your your approach would be a good one to, to go into him and saying you're going to be on this team unless you give us a reason to cut you if that's the message from from management that you know that does I think accomplish the goal of not not over promising because you're still kind of putting it out there that you know this is not a, a you know it's not going to be handed to you but it, it, it does enough kind of for the vote of confidence I, I think that's a good I think that's a, a good approach. Um, Nick Lubert says, what line combinations do you think would most positively impact the developments of Philip Zadina and Moritz Sider next season? Not necessarily where they will or should play, but where they would improve the most. Yeah, I think Sider, you know, I said this, I think, on a, on an earlier episode. I would put him next to Danny DeKaiser, uh, a little bit like, uh, you know, what uh, Nick Lidstrom was offered to him with Brad McCrimmon being his first defense partner as the guy that's just the steady rock. He's going to be there defensively. He's got your back. He's going to make a good first pass and let Sider play a little bit more of a free-flowing game. Uh, I think that'll let him kind of attack a little bit more in the offensive zone. It'll let him play with his instincts uh, and worry less about being the first guy back uh, as opposed to if he was playing with a guy like Dennis Chalowski or, or Philip Baronic. I think it would be a little bit more of a concern that both guys would be kind of overly aggressive and you would kind of run into scenarios where one of them may compromise their instincts to a certain extent. So I think Danny DeKaiser would be the perfect, or even Patrick Nemeth, I think either one of those guys would be the perfect kind of counterpart to Moritz Sider's game. Uh, as far as Philip Zadina, I think he's a little bit trickier. Uh, the natural answer is you want him to play a little bit with, with Dylan Larkin. Um, you know, me personally, I think he's good playing with uh, Valtteri Filppula. Uh, Filppula being a natural passer is still a good passer, uh, even though his legs have kind of uh, gone away from him. I think he's a guy who's going to look for Zadina to be a shot first line and uh, shoot first player on that line. And I think the challenge for Philip Zadina next year is you want to see if he can carry a line. Uh, so I would personally start him out with, uh, you know, Valtteri Fopola. And then depending on who the Red Wings get, if you get Alexi Lafreniere on the wing or uh, if you get Marco Rossi and, and potentially he's you decide he's ready to make the NHL uh, or if you get Tim Stutzel and, and you decide he's going to uh, 
uh, play in the NHL. I think either one of those guys would be uh, nice on the wing or even at center if you've got Rossi there uh, to push and, and give you a little bit more of a dynamic line where Zadina is the shooter and you're looking for him to kind of carry that line uh, with those other guys. Um, but that being said, I really think just anywhere in the top six is, is where he needs to be. Yeah, I, I agree with just about everything you said there. I think Zadina certainly. Um, I, I think he's ready to kind of play with Larkin and 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 have it be the right you know developmental blend of good for him because he can score and really use his his talent to not just shoot but to create plays for other people who will finish and also kind of be challenged by the the matchups that playing with Larkin demands. I think I think that's the right blend of of challenge and kind of boost uh, you know offensively. Um, but I also think you know what, what you said about Philpola is exactly right too. I don't think it, it, it he would be like harmed by playing with Valtteri Philpola by any means. So um, I, I agree with you completely there. I, I, they might be a little bit hesitant to play him with another rookie since there's or I mean a rookie um, just since he's still so young. But um, you know I don't dispute that the, you know whoever the Red Wings draft uh, in the top five this year could very well become you know pretty quickly one of the best playmakers on their roster so there's merit in that for sure as for cider i would lean nemeth um i think nemeth is the one who you know when you're playing with danny de kaiser you're playing really tough minutes right away which is still true of nemeth but de kaiser also is someone who i think you're pretty confident in him skating the puck up ice if i'm the red wings i want cider when he's out there to yes of course be playing tough matchups because that's what he's going to play yes of course be be in situations where he's asked to 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 maintain the physical strong defensive elements of his game but also with with nemeth out there i think he would be the natural defenseman to move the puck he would have a clear advantage there and i think you want him getting used to kind of being in control from that sense so nemeth would kind of be my personal pick there yeah, I think either one of them would be great. And, and honestly, yep, with how sure. good Patrick Nemeth was last year in the defensive zone, I mean, he'd be a great partner to play with uh, for Sider for sure. Yep, absolutely. And that'd be a really tough matchup. For, I mean, for other teams, like I think then you got two really big, really physical, defensively strong defensemen. Like all of a sudden, there, if your top four next year is DeKaiser, Hronik, Moritz Sider, Patrick Nemeth, you you got something cooking there in the top four. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you're on your way to, to building a competent top four. Um, I can buy that. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us, though. So thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back at you later this week. We've got something pretty fun planned, so you will want to stay tuned for that. Uh, have a great one. Take care. Stay healthy. <laughs>